I use the wedding cake metaphor where it's like there's the base level, which is the plot, and then everything else is built atop that. You've got the level of, you know, you've got the level of plot, and then on top of that, you've got what do the events mean to the characters and how do they alter their trajectory through life. And then on top of that, you've got this, you know, how does this interact with the organizing metaphor of the United States being a place where people reinvent themselves or lie about themselves for one reason or another. And then on top of that, you've got advertising and this sort of metatextual aspect of, you know, advertising being based around creating a desire which is then satisfied by purchasing the product, which ties back into the lower level, which is about, you know, the building of America. And it just keeps going and going. There's this, there's a kind of a basic psychology level, and then there's another level which is like mythology. term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Hey, I think we have guests today. What? (laughs) (laughs) We're not alone. What the hell's going on? We are here for the Mad Men Season 1 wrap-up, epilogue, bonanza discussion, and we have special guest Deborah Lip, never heard of her. Hi. And Matt Zoller Sites. Hello. Welcome everybody. I recognize you from a book called Bad Men Carousel. I remember uh, that book well. <laughs> probably just as well we weren't all zooming then. <laughs> it was like it was just a lot of email chains. That was. Yeah. But people still talk about that book as the as the what? Give me a word. Definitive. Preeminent. <laughs> and longest. That's probably true. Yeah. You want to talk a little about this, like how you devised the structure of that book? Because it is, it is interestingly structured. <laughs> well, the idea was, uh, it was just, you know, it's going to be a collection of critical essays, but I also wanted it to be a like a an ensemble cast like a television show so we had a lot we had different contributors primarily you two uh and uh, and also you know like simon abrams did some entries on some of the musical selections and we had uh, footnotes um that were cannibalized versions of the recaps that andrew johnston wrote for the house next door of seasons one and two and andrew unfortunately died uh after that season was over um and and Andrew's mother, Martha Orton, wrote poems for the book, and mm-hmm. uh, and we had original mil- uh, illustrations by Max Dalton, which are, are I think quite lovely, and capture that cryptic quality that a lot of the show had. <clears throat> I'm pleased to say that although the book the book was a very hard sell for the publisher, I mean really like it was kind of I was surprised that they finally went for it because they kept saying no. They just thought a book like that wouldn't sell, but I will say that the book is still in print. It's five, five years later, it's still in print, and it's in paperback, so yeah, It is revered by fans, and one of the things that, by doing this podcast and, and going back and, and starting over, and, and for me, it has been a full five years where I haven't watched any Mad Men, is Matthew Weiner, I remember him saying, the show isn't going to age, and the show has uh, altered in perception, and I think that's something we can all talk about like what what's different for you now in today's today's moment but um the show has not aged at least so far so the book the book can come right along with it you know the book's not going to age 
either. Uh, we're not so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I've, generally, I've generally found that movies and television shows that are period pieces that are scrupulously faithful to the period in terms of the filmmaking choices, the music choices, and everything else, and don't have a lot of anachronisms, tend to age very well. And one example of that for me is uh, the Godfather films, mm. which I've just revisited recently because, uh, you know, I have all these teenagers in the house and they're into movies and there's a lot they haven't seen. And it's always exciting when I show them an older movie. And of course, that movie is almost 50 years old. <laughs> oh, and good Lord. Yeah. I don't understand. And uh, <laughs> it was, uh, everybody watched it all the way to the end. They were really into it. It really holds up well. And and I was noticing just how remarkably in period it feels. Like, it doesn't feel like, I mean, it feels like a 70s movie in the sense that there's sex and violence in it, and it's, and it's explicit. But really, just everything else about it, it doesn't feel like a kind of a cliche 70s movie where there's, like, a lot of zoom lenses and, like, a, and a semi-obligatory lyrical interlude where people are running in slow motion through a daisy field and there's pollen swirling and Marvin Hamlish is playing or something. Like, there's none of that stuff. It's not... Just cut, but yeah. Yeah. It's um. not, <laughs> but Mad Men, Mad Men, I think, with one or two really, really minor exceptions, I think they they really tried to make a TV show that was similar to the kinds of films that Don Draper would be sneaking off in the middle of the day to attend at the cinema. And, and the 60s were a great transitional period because they were doing more um it's very they were doing movies that were not for children that you couldn't bring the kids to and and the entire purpose of them was to give the adults something to see and talk about and and perhaps be uh a bit challenged by or scandalized by and they hadn't gotten to the point yet where they could be full-on bloody gore you know explicit sex people saying the f word but they were creeping up on that and like that's when they brought in the ratings board and and i was struck by this time the the you know like the fact that the uh the sex scenes on mad ben i think are brilliantly done because you always know exactly what people are doing but they don't show you anything right. you know like it's there's no there's no euphemisms really it's not like uh two people kiss and then they close the curtain or they shut the blind or something like you see people in bed you kind of know you know you know what is being done, but they're not they're not going full HBO on you. It's sort of more implied, and I feel like that's perfect, absolutely perfect the way they did it. I feel like I need to use that at home. I should say, let's let's go full HBO. <laughs> I, think, I feel like that's a new phrase that we should add to our language. At the bottom, there's CBS, and you gradually work your way up to AMC, and then there's HBO, and then finally on the high end, there's Stars. <laughs> so you're gonna say HBO Max. <laughs> By the way, we don't uh, we don't much say the f word on this podcast. Although we do, ha we are trying to get hashtag fuck Pete Campbell trending. So work that in. We'll see if we can get there. <laughs> Deborah, um, you have a book coming out. I do. I do. I have the ultimate James Bond fan book coming out because honestly, um, Matt, if, if you could see the wall behind me, which there's a door closed, so you can't, um, the two giant frame posters are Casino Royale and The Godfather. Cool. Um, and um, I am obsessed with James Bond movies. I was so excited um, in later seasons of Mad Men when they started incorporating the fat, you know, Bond mania. It took, it took way too long for me to get there. Um, and so I wrote this book 
in 2006, right before the Daniel Craig movies came out. And it is everything trivia and fun and entertaining about every James Bond movie, including Never Say Never Again, but not including the ridiculous 1967 Casino Royale. And I have fully updated it for four and a half movies. Cool. Including pre-release information, you know, where available on No Time to Die. It was my COVID project. That's good. We, good use we of all your have time. one. Some people started a podcast. Some watch Jacques Papin on YouTube. No Time to Die was the first major release that was delayed because of the pandemic. Mm. Right. So right. I come out when? suddenly saw the opportunity. <laughs> it was supposed to come out in April. April. What a weird time. Oh, boy. But the the original the original printing got very good reviews, and then I had a fraught, we shall say politely, fraught relationship with the publisher. <laughs> now that the publisher is out of business, I decided to self-publish the new edition. Good for you. Awesome. When you, I remember when you wrote the first, when you said you were writing the first one. And we've been sisters for a long time, and I was like, "You like James Bond?" <laughs> Just. I, I have never paid attention to James Bond and, um, and the most I know about it. I, I did like that. I spotted the uh, branded red that was the same PMS color of red throughout the film. That's, huh. my, that's my advertising agency. I, I'm like that, like the lipstick and the this and the that. It's all the exact shade of red. All right. What did you guys think of season one of Mad Men? <laughs> I liked it. Good, right? And we're out. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) It's season one is a jewel because it's it's perfectly self-contained. If it had been a one season show, we would have missed a great deal of great television, but it's a perfect jewel. The rest of it, I'm now I've been rewatching. I'm in season four right now. It gets more sprawling. It gets more spread out. It gets sloppier in in good ways, but that perfect self-containment of season one that that is not repeated. I mean, in some ways, it gets it gets better, but the the jewel case of season one is is very very special. It's the most structurally perfect of all of the seasons. Yeah, um, and I think like in a lot of other great dramas, um, including The Sopranos. Part of that, I think part of that comes from their thinking or maybe even assuming that the show wasn't going to last more than one season and, and trying to say as much as they could in that one season. But also because once you get beyond season one, um, probably somebody from season one will have died or uh, gone on to do another show or something. And they start adding new characters and adding new subplots and things. And it just becomes bigger. It becomes more, um, there's more to account for. And, uh, uh, that's inevitable, and it's fine, but but it's very, very hard, as, as far as I have seen, to replicate the, the structural perfection of a great first season. Uh, not that a lot of shows have them, but, like, when they do, it's something that you notice that it's, like, it is, like, as you say, it's like a jewel or, you know, an egg or something, where you go, like, I don't know what you could do to improve this. It's, it's perfectly fine the way it is. Like, that's it. It doesn't get any better than that. Um, and also just the way that they structure... Uh, the story to keep giving you pieces, new pieces of information about the major characters, particularly Don, so that every week there's a little new thing 
that complicates your previous reaction to that character. And, you know, like when his, when his, uh, his kid brother shows up and, uh, and then, you know, the, and by, by the end you get to the revelation that he, he stole a man's identity and it's, it's very daring of them to put all of that in the second of the last episode, you know, the, the resolution of that. And then, and then to kind of, it's almost like in the Sopranos, the way they handled uh, Richie April, where you think like, how can this be the second to the last episode? Because they're going to lose his identity. And then I wish I knew someone who made that point on a podcast. Dan, exactly. So I'm not a Sopranos watcher, but Dan, absolutely. When we discussed Nixon versus Kennedy, and which Richie Aprile was shocked. exactly the yeah. perfect case for that. When, well, when she shoots but, him dead, it's right but there. The, but that's kind of the gold standard of getting, make, you know, surprising the audience, not by what you do, but by where you do it in the story. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like they're kind of doing that. And then you kind of get to the end and you're like, what the hell could they possibly do in the final episode? Oh, okay. Well, the, we, as we were going through it, the, the, the experience of watching it again week by week as we've been doing for this first season, <clears throat> one of these amazing experiences, obviously all the things you catch or the conversations that seem so important that may not have seemed so important when you originally watched them or even a second or third time. And then <clears throat> when you do get to the end and you realize just how swiftly – Everything with that kind of main tree trunk of the story of Don's identity. Who is he? How did he get here? What happened? What's Korea about? It all wraps up in that Nixon versus Kennedy episode 12. Mm -hmm. And they just have that little hanger of Pete with the box at the end. And you know it's a cliffhanger of some kind, and you know it's going to get resolved. But you don't realize just how swiftly they're going to whisk you through that process. And I've heard I've heard Matt Weiner talk about it where it's like, yeah, most – most shows that would be, you know, ten episodes long of, <laughs> of the box, and he's holding it, and what's he going to do, and building the tension. Yeah. Whereas you just had that little teeny leftover of a cliffhanger that didn't even feel like one, and yet yeah. it resolved beautifully in in the in the last episode. Yeah, and the fact that you go to the boss and they say, "Oh, by the way, he stole a man's identity," and the boss is like, "Eh." <laughs> <laughs> and, and who among us has not found occasion to say, Mr. Campbell, who cares? <laughs> right. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's great because it tells you that, as if you didn't already figure it out, that this is not the kind of show where what's important is, will someone find out Don's secret? That is actually not important in the greatest right. scheme of things. It's more about what does this mean to Don and how does it affect his relationship with the other major characters? And and that is where that is what season one leaves us with, you know, in terms of how are we walking into season two? We're walking into season two where we, the audience, have the secret revealed to us, and we could have thought that that was going to take three years. A and you can now review revisit all of season one with that in mind. But now the whole rest of the series is who is this man that stole someone's identity? So by the time we are on the final episode, he is still. Without spoilers, because I know you guys are giving me the fish eye, he is still working through that he is someone who stole a man's identity. That is his truth. The show is also saying, like, who, 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 who among us is not pretending to be someone they are not? Right, right, exactly. And I think that's wrapped up with with how Bert precisely handles what Pete has to say. He, I mean, he says, "Who cares?" That's kind of the that's the the headline, but. You know, he references the founding of the country. You know, the men who founded and built this country have done way worse than whatever you're thinking about here. So it's kind of like he's putting it just in, in all of ten words, like putting it in this context of like it's not just I don't care. The country doesn't care. 
the, the way to the way to succeed and be prosperous is to not care because you're wasting our time with this. And it, and it rhymes and it rhymes with that uh, line in the opening in the pilot when the you know the whole pitch with the tobacco executive and he and he talks about you know and of course it's complete BS but America was given to us by the Indians and it's like they're not really given technical <laughs> right. about it but right. that's the story that he chooses to tell in order to justify himself and in an entire region of the country that he comes from truly and the exactly. country you know yeah so oh and i thought you were going to reference the pitch i thought it was going to be all about finding out if you are okay that's where i thought you were going to frankly what you do in order to believe you are okay yep. right yes well, that's it. yeah happiness is the smell of a new car right john is also wrestling in addition to who it is to be somebody who has stolen someone someone's identity one of the lies he's been telling himself is who am i really hurting with a lot of things behind that, right? With this affair, with this identity theft, with all the Don Draper things that Don Draper does and the Dick Whitman things that Don Draper does. And now Adam has killed himself. So that- yeah, exhibit A, who do you hurt, right? That has popped that balloon in him of the, the who, who am I really hurting with this? He now, he now has an answer. And, and where, do we go, where do we go from there in the next- six seasons. Uh, Matt, so you, you brought up The Sopranos. You've, in addition to writing a book about Mad Men with your, your recaps, you've also written a book about The Sopranos. So there's obviously the tie of Matt Weiner, uh, the pedigree that he brought to Mad Men uh, as the creator and showrunner coming uh, from The Sopranos as head writer. Tell us what you think uh, what was important from The Sopranos into Mad Men? Well, gosh, that's a, uh, it's a lot. But but on the top of the list would be um, the structure. Despite the fact that the first season of The Sopranos and the first season of Mad Men are more um, unified in their totality than other seasons, it is still a show that kind of splits the difference between the novel and a collection of short stories, which is the an observation that I you know I can't take credit for. That was... Andrew Johnston made that in a recap at my old blog, like, I don't know, 2008 or something like that. But I think it's really true. I think it's true of The Sopranos and Mad Men and a lot of other uh, dramas that are kind of in that mode, where <clears throat> the story is not maybe 100% self-contained, but it's self-contained enough that you can kind of experience it as its own thing. A lot of dramas have kind of lost track of. And then the other thing, which I think is ultimately much more important, is the emphasis on psychology. Not just in the sense of these are complicated, interesting characters who are fleshed out in a way that makes them seem plausibly human and not just like television characters, but also literally an emphasis on psychology. Like you had Tony going to, you know, Dr. Melfi, and other characters going to other therapists throughout the run of the show, which is something people tend to forget. And and the way that the show analyzes its characters is, I think, very similar to the way that a therapist like Dr. Melfi would analyze a person. And I think the way that Mad Men advanced the ball was, even though there are a few scattered therapy scenes here and there on the show, particularly in season one with Betty, it, it basically did away with the therapy scenes. For the most part, like it wasn't like the Sopranos where there were some therapy scenes in every episode where we talked about the mechanisms of the human mind and the effect of the, you know, the on the personality of, of it our wasn't a consistent plot element. Yeah, 
the subtext didn't become text in that way. And I think that works because this is, you know, one of the things that distinguishes people in this period of history is they talk about Freud and they talk about psychology and therapy, but for the most part, they don't go. They don't actually go. It's something that like a handful of people in a, in a few big cities might do. And there's jokes about it in the movies that they go to see and, and stand up comedy and like late night talk show sketches and New Yorker cartoons would do therapy jokes, but the vast majority of Americans were not in therapy. And there was a perception that if you were, it was because there was something quote unquote wrong with you. And I think, isn't there even a line in season one about that with Betty? There's, just, there's several, there's, there's a bunch of references to it that, 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 I mean, that, that there's something wrong with Betty. And that is a trigger for Don. Like he gets angry at the idea that there's something unwell about Betty, like it's his failing. And then you've also got uh, Roger Sterling says it way early on about his daughter, Margaret, seeing an analyst. Not approvingly, yeah. Yeah, not approvingly. The other, I just wanted to also interject, is the therapy that we're watching is terrible. Dr. Wayne is a terrible therapist. He's 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 unethical, but he's also doing nothing with her. And the one it's moment... probably great for 1960, though. I don't. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, and, and in later seasons, she does reference that the therapy did her no good at all. There is also the one moment where Betty actually starts to get angry and she and he says to her, oh, does that make you angry? And she gets angry at him. And absolutely, <laughs> she absolutely will not take the insight. <laughs> like she is not, you know, I don't know what she thinks she's doing there, but she's not, you know, she's waiting to be done to. She has no, there's no therapeutic relationship that I can see that would be effective for anybody anywhere in that. I agree with you. I had a good anecdote from Matt Weiner on this. He got interested in the idea of a woman's hands going numb. So he contacted a therapist and said, what would it mean? What is that such, is there a thing like that? And, and if it is, what would it mean if there is? And the therapist said, it sounds like she's really angry. And that took Matt in a different direction in his writing with Betty, because that wasn't what he had imagined. Um, but it took him in a different direction. And I think we see more and more how incredibly angry she is. And I think that that speaks, Matt, to what you were saying about how there's a psychology informing the writing, even if you're not seeing therapy sessions. And I think that is what she gets out of therapy. She gets angrier. Yeah, and I think I, I think one of the things that's really important about about the the depiction of therapy on that show and also on The Sopranos is that um, even when we are given a description or a summary of somebody's psychological state, they might they might or might not understand it or they might or might not accept it and even if they accept it they might or might not actually act on it and try to use that knowledge in the world outside of therapy and that's and so you know and and it's never presented as a solution or an answer it's just a, a lot of times it's like a it's like turning the key in the ignition of the car and it's like yeah but you know now what the car so the car, the engine is running but the car is in the driveway it's up to you to drive to drive the car and where are you going to go with the car you know and and uh, um, I think the big mistake that a lot of post post Sopranos post Mad Men shows make is that they show their they show their homework a bit too much like they have characters delivering big fat reams of of, of therapeutic exposition to each other you know well your problem is you've never resolved your relationship <laughs> with your father and it's like hey 
cut to father interior. Right. <laughs> did people did people really talk that way to each other? Yeah, I, sometimes they do, but when they do, it's like they're yelling at each other usually, and 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 it's kind of not really useful information. And I just hate it when. I just hate it when any kind of work of art tells me exactly what I'm supposed to think of somebody. I like it better to be a little confused and having to sort through my reactions. Was there anything in between? Was Mad Men the first real drama to take these elements, the structural part, the psychology part? Was there anything before Mad Men, after Sopranos, that started to help, to explore these things, or was Mad Men really the first to pick up on them? None that did all of the same things, like, all together. But I think what was unusual about Mad Men and, and The Sopranos was um, those shows and Twin Peaks uh, actually used psychology, dreams, fantasies, um, symbolism, like, like not just dream symbolism and metaphor, but actually the kind of uh, what I call plausibly deniable symbolism uh, to inform the characters in the story like like the world around the characters would actually sometimes feel like a dream because things that were happening were quote-unquote on the nose in the way that they are in dreams and and the show didn't tell you this is a dream now it's not really happening sometimes there would be dreams that were clearly marked as dreams but other times a dream would start to happen and you wouldn't realize it was a dream and there were other times and as you get later in the Mad Men, there's more examples of this, of scenes where you think, oh, this must be a dream sequence, but it actually isn't. This is actually, <laughs> right. it is happening. And, and yet, and yet, I think everything on Mad Men is sort of right on the edge of being a dream or being uh, not, not to be taken literally exactly. And I think that's something that I think is still very confusing to a number of viewers, and it makes a number of them actually angry. Yeah. They get actually angry. Like if you tell them, like they'll say, well, is this a dream or is this not a dream? Or did that happen or did it not happen? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Right. It happened on the screen. Did it's it happen or not? It's like, why do you care so much whether it happened or not? What difference does it make? And it makes them even angrier when I ask that. <laughs> we, we had the joy of running a blog with a comment section for Mad Men. And people went nuts on there there are certain scenes in later seasons that people spent you know 300 or more <laughs> comments deciding whether or not it was a dream sequence and got very serious about it and honestly that was a technique that i think also is barred from the sopranos at least i can't remember a show being as explicitly inexplicit that's a big thing is that you know that that sort of walking right on the edge of of right. uh, unreal. Are there? I'm trying to think of season one Mad Men examples of that. And, I, and again, that's the the plus and the minus of season one being this beautiful egg, as as Matt says, that it's it tells a very specific story. Matt Weiner starts with smoke gets in your eyes, and he knows where it's going. He knows it's going to Korea. He knows. I I think he also even knows that Peggy has the baby. You know, from the time he conceives that that show, and then he doesn't have a concept. I see so what then, you said there. I'm sorry. Conceived. You said conceives. Carry on. Ha ha. She does that um, all the time. I have no idea what she's talking I'm about. I'm hilarious. <laughs> I I sometimes. Yeah, that's because you don't so, know how hilarious you are. That's right. 
That's what I keep telling myself. When you get into later seasons, that's when you first start seeing episodes that are formally experimental and where there is a clear Douglas Sirk episode and there is a clear, you know, Quentin Tarantino episode. There are there are specific <laughs> motifs. There's a Hitchcock episode that that um, the show plays with. And, you know, to my great despair, there's an Antino Antonioni episode, you know, I mean, there's specific motifs that the show plays with. But when you have this beautiful self-contained season, you're not going to do that. You're not going to spread out. Yeah. And that's the advantage that the later seasons will have. Maybe Marriage of Figaro has has an element of that, a bit of a dreamlike quality, nightmare-like quality, even the sequence in Marriage of Figaro where where he's building the he gets up and he builds the playhouse and uh, I, I don't know and the and the beers I, I uh, clearly that is a plot element but there is something a little like is he awake yet like there is a, a bit of a surreal quality and he's also you know he's trafficking in things that if they appeared in a dream they would be analyzed like he's a grown man who's building a child's playhouse <laughs> and 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 uh, you know he gets to drunker and drunker as he goes and and he's you know he is a kind of flirting with or being flirted with by a woman who is a uh you know the sing the divorced single mother of a child which is sort of like this inverted mirror of his loss you know him losing his mother so it's kind of like it's weird it's like mother and child have been reunited but also there's this weird shadow nuclear family that's on the that 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 could be created here Wow. If the plot had gone in a different direction, Whoa. like he can end up being one of those guys who was in different states, you know? That's something. That was and, a lot. And all of this stuff is <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've talked. Yeah, but, you know, but sure, if, you this is about, great. if you think about the show as a therapist might or as somebody who has read a, a lot of psychology would, you can analyze it like you would a patient if you were a therapist, or you can analyze it the way a therapist would analyze a dream. And, like, the beautiful thing about dreams is that they are not – they are not things that are decoded. It's not like you solve the po the puzzle and you unlock, you know, the extra Mario superpower because you've solved the dream. It's like the dream, you know, I had a dream recently that I've, I've talked about with my therapist probably four different times at this point, and I keep uncovering different ways that you can interpret it, and it's not like the previous ones were wrong. You know, there's like, there's this layer and this layer and this layer, and it's not like one layer is necessarily deeper than the others. They all kind of coexist, and some of them contradict each other, and like, this character is, you know, this per this thing, this person or thing that appears in the dream is me, but it's also my mother, and it's my brother, and this, and these people over here represent my children, but they also represent my job. You know, and things like that. And it's all true. All these things are true at the same time. And Mad Men understood that. Yeah. Mad Men understood, you know, the, the basic literal level of what happens, there's almost never any doubt about what happened. It's not the kind of show that, that leaves you in doubt as to what happened there. Well, how was that resolved? They, they, they tell you. And usually if they don't tell you, it's because they're saving it. They're saving it. They may have some reason for saving it but they'll get to it eventually where you're like why haven't they told me what happened with so-and-so when they went to such and such a place it's like they're getting to it that's the kind of show it is they're not going to just not tell you they'll get to it when they're ready but 95 percent of the time you see what happens when it happens you're not in doubt everything is clear but then on top of that 
the writers are stacking, you know, I, I use the wedding cake metaphor where it's like there's the base level, which is the plot, and then everything else is built atop that. You've got the level of, you know, you've got the level of plot, and then on top of that, you've got what do the events mean to the characters and how do they alter their trajectory through life? And then on top of that, you've got this, you know, how does this interact with the organizing metaphor of the United States being a place where people reinvent themselves or lie about themselves for one reason or another? And then on top of that, you've got advertising and this sort of metatextual aspect of, you know, advertising being based around creating a desire, which is then satisfied by purchasing the product, which ties back into the lower level, which is about, you know, the building of America. And it just keeps going and going. There's this, there's a kind of a basic psychology level. And then there's another level, which is like mythology. There's a lot of characters, you know, particularly when you get later into the show, there's a lot of characters and situations that are explicitly drawn from, uh, from mythology from the Bible, from opera, uh, from from other uh, texts, some of them quite old, like novels and poems and things. Like this is a show that's very aware of literature and, and makes a lot of literary and poetic allusions. And all of these things coexist. And it's not like, and I often, when I talk about this show with people, people who are fans of the show, like I'll talk about, you know, there's a particular episode in season three, which I won't go into here because spoilers, but... It's an episode that, you know, it functions beautifully as its own self-contained story, but it also is a perfect encapsulation of everything that season three is about. And it sort of wraps up, I believe, everything that had happened up to that point on the show. And uh, when I talk about it with people who have seen the, that episode, they go, oh, some of them will go, oh, my God, I never thought of it that way. I, I You know, like as if. I've solved an equation for them. And I have to tell them, like, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Like, I'm not saying you watched it wrong. Right. Like, the way that you watched it is, 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 it's not a correct or incorrect thing. There's, like, there's a level, you, you caught, like, four levels of it already, but because you didn't get levels six, seven, and eight doesn't mean you well, did Well, and honestly, it. that's why we were able to start a blog about it. And that's why five years out, we can do a podcast about it. Because not only is it, as as Dan has said, eminently eminently chewable. There's no mm. right or wrong. Well, there's occasional wrong, but, but there's, there's, a few wrongs. there's a few wrongs. But for the most part, you know, it's <laughs> just. Again. But people also want to hear the other stuff and the other stuff. And oh my God, you're right. I never noticed that, and I never noticed that, and I never. What an incredible way to look at it because it it's fairly infinite. As I rewatch, what happens is I go and I look at the blog to see what I wrote about any given episode or what anybody else wrote about any given episode. And I will be watching an episode and I'll be going, wow, that's amazing. I never thought of that before. And I'll be struck by it. And I'll find that I already wrote a thousand words about it, you know, seven years ago. <laughs> but the opposite will also happen where I'll be, um, I'll be watching an episode and I'll be struck by you know, some very obvious metaphors and some very clear symbolism and some interconnections, and I'll go and I'll look, and I never caught any of it. I didn't even comment about it. I didn't even write myself mm -hmm. a note to write about that later. Both of those things will happen because some of the some of the rewatching is so rewarding because even if you have had that insight before, it strikes you in this kind of freshness because the interconnections are subtle and yet they emerge in this there's a light when some of those interconnections emerge that I just think nothing, nothing else on television really gives me that kind of reaction. Still, season one had a, had a lot of that. What what I noticed a lot 
where something will happen in one scene, and then that character, that character, a, se- a scene or two later, is still responding to what happened a couple s- scenes for them back to for themselves as a character. So Don will have something happen on the train, and he and it was actually it was Marriage of Figaro where we spotted this. He has that uh, close encounter with the guy who spots him, recognizes him as Dick Whitman from the Army days, and it so jolts him that when he gets into work, he's snapping at everybody. He's a he's he's really just brusque with everybody, with Peggy, with the writing team, blah blah blah, and it's it's sort of like the first domino to fall in this. What happens obviously thereafter, but there's a number of instances like that where you go, oh yeah, he's just coming out of that argument with you know whoever it might be. He or she's coming out of this environment and then when they get to that next environment they're still reliving just like you do in real life you know you carry it with you and there's so much of that where things start to make sense because of the sequencing that you go wow yeah i never i never noticed that before but now of course it makes total sense and it was there the whole time very few television shows treat characters as if character is a moving target all of our internal characters are moving targets. People grieve, people get excited, people have bad days. And Mad Men is very conscientious of that, very conscious of that, I should say. Um, I mean, 30-something was always, yeah. you, you know, months, many episodes after Gary's death, Michael was still reacting to the fact that his best friend had died, Right. which is how people we are, react. Right. But most very little on television treats us like we live with our the moving targets of our inner selves. An example from film, a great movie, underrated movie, Michael Clayton. And there was, which was so well written. But Tilda Swinton made a comment once. She goes, all these characters feel like they were written by different writers. Each one of us had, it felt like each one of us, Michael and, you know, all the various feel like we had our own writer writing our dialogue because we were so distinct as individuals, which of course we are, but in films and TV doesn't ever work that way. And yet there, that's, a, that's a quality I'll link to Mad Men in the way that things follow through in a way that is not always, um, that's rarely seen. And nobody but, nobody but Roger would tell the kind of jokes that Roger tells and nobody but Pete says... Uh, Something like that. Hell's bells, <laughs> Christ on a cracker, or all those things that he says. Yeah, I think also the uh, the awareness of power is another thing that distinguishes Mad Men, like that thing that you were talking about, where uh, something will happen, you know, early in an episode or three episodes ago, and it will continue to affect the mindset of a particular character that it happened to is true. But I think what really raises it up a notch is that. The character will, if they're going to take it out on somebody, they don't take it out on somebody who's above them oh, right. on the left. So Don may be in a crappy mood because of something that happened to him, but he doesn't take it out on uh, the founder of the firm. And he doesn't really take it out on Roger, and if he does, it's only because Roger and he have a relationship that is apart from their their power dynamic. And, and um, he'll take it out on Peggy. He'll take it out on Pete. He'll take it out on a secretary. He'll take it out on, you know, the guy who's bringing him his Chinese it's food or something. Rolls downhill. I mean, that's the old story. Exactly. Right? And the the, uh, the Sopranos and Deadwood were also very, very good. That's that. great with that, right? That's a good explanation for why Betty is so sad. Betty would either be an abusive mother or not. Mm-hmm. And she has no place to put it. In the, in the power structure, 
she's gotten i mean or she she could also be worse to carla i guess right like she she has no place to yeah. put this there is there's nobody to take it out on it's a huge part of her story season one frankly is 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 what can i do where can i go with this i'm i don't know what i'm experiencing but it's not good and it's not healthy and i can't do anything with it i can't even identify it she, she's very childlike and a lot of that is her own like she doesn't view herself as childlike but she certainly treats herself as childlike and holds herself as childlike like it's her own doing in a lot of ways like she actually mm -hmm. you know she 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 can take power um but she but right now she's she's relating to this eight-year-old boy as somebody who's who's a, a peer who can who can who can listen to her she says to him you know i, I don't have anyone I, I can't talk to anyone having just left her therapy right so she's she's a her, some of the lack of power is is the structure of is the cultural structure and the and the familial structure that she's in and some of it is how she holds herself in life well she has an explicit conversation about that in 5g about with the photo shoot right she goes into the office and she wants to be treated like she's powerful because because she's don's wife and she's not treated like she's powerful and that bothers her also her mother isn't her mother dead in season one? Her mother just died three months, before season one. Three months, three months before yes. we meet her. Yeah, so, so you know, this is another source of her anger that is unacknowledged uh, by almost everybody around her. No one even really mentions it, and they certainly don't demonstrate any real empathy towards her. I mean, this is a woman like her mother died. Like, no really wonder recently. No wonder she's in a crappy mood. And she's in her twenties. Yeah, Don, Don, Don won't. Don won't let her. Don won't let her like air it out. Yeah, and and no wonder she. No wonder one of the ways that she manifests her 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 sadness and her trauma is against her children. She's a mother. Right. She's a mother. She's a motherless child now, and she's expected to mother these these kids. And it's an impossible situation. And the world around her has no understanding of her uh, pain at all. So, you know, I'm 100% pro-Betty in this season. I was always 100% pro-Betty in this season. Um, that may or may not change. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> but, no, I was always 100%. Uh, I, I thought she was, she was somebody trying very hard to be good and trying to understand what was happening around. Like, there was a kindness to her that um, she did not know what to do with her feelings or how to have them. And she had just lost her mother, and nobody cared. And her, and then, and then, her father's already got got a new girlfriend living with him. Yeah. Um. You know, within this six month period or whatever it is. I think the I think the show is very, very astute in showing you how trauma was not dealt with at that time in in America among upper middle class white people, particularly. Um, it seemed like the more sort of stereotypically uh, respectable you got, the more they were told not to even acknowledge the bad stuff. And that's why, you know, you've got all of these men on the show who are uh, World War II veterans or, or Korean War veterans who saw some horrible, horrible stuff. And uh, they aren't allowed to talk about it. Uh, they aren't even allowed to admit that it affected them in any way. And then you've got these women who many of them are like, you know, they're if they're not 
you know, setting aside for the fact that in a lot of cases they're kind of psychologically malformed by the way that they've been conditioned, they're also being constantly, like, harassed, humiliated, abused, belittled. You know, they're the victim of what we would now call microaggressions every single day, and they're expected to just take it. I mean, there's all these – everywhere you look, there's people who are being treated badly, and they're expected to just take it. And there's not even an outlet where they can talk about it. Like, it's bad enough that they're expected to just – you know, suck it up and, 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 you know, and deal with it. But also they, they, there's no one they can talk about it to or with, and there's no, we don't even have that language. Like even now, like even people who aren't in therapy at least have absorbed through the popular culture, uh, some little sense of what psychology is. And you know what you're saying make, make, makes me think of a character. We haven't brought her up here, but a character like Joan, you know, I, I refer to her as the surrogate for the men in a lot of cases in season one in particular she's the the boss the man the supervisor in the room i think of babylon when they're trying on the lipstick she she's a surrogate for the account guys and the 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 guys in general being in the room keeping the women in line and how to how to do it and what to do and where to go and don't steal the lipstick and all like this and giving instructions but, and then there's a number of instances just in season one where she's doing exactly that. She's in place of a man where a man isn't there talking to Peggy a lot of times. She does that. And it's sort of like another – it's fascinating to see another reaction to Matt, exactly what you're saying. All these things, I can't, I can't talk about it. I can't verbalize it. I can't react to it. I have to just swallow it. And because Joan, partially because of her looks – is able to forge another path, at least, at least at her age and sort of in her life experience thus far, is able to deal with those things in a very specific and unique way that has been working for her, or so she thinks. But to me, that character is, is a reaction to so much of what you said. Yeah, the women who are below her on the social ladder also go to her with their problems, and the men who are above go to her with their problems. Nobody ever seems to ask Joan how she's doing, which is a source of discomfort and sadness for her. No one cares. Everybody, to Joan, Joan is just, you know, she's a shoulder to cry on or, or, to go or, out or an act. You know, or, or somebody to take care of the dirty, boring tasks that they don't want to deal with, but nobody ever asks Joan, how are you? And even the writing, even the writing does that, Joan, to a certain extent. Joan is there in service of a scene. No matter how interesting she is as a character, no matter how um, fascinating she is just being on, on camera, you're like in season three before Joan is about Joan. A hundred percent. Jab, jab, no spoilers. Just kidding. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha. That was so funny. Not everyone knows there will be a season three. <laughs> People do make choices. Again, how Betty says, I have no one to talk to in the same episode where Francine came to her house to absolutely spill about, like, Francine had someone to talk to. Betty is way more invested in that, in that appearance of perfection um, although willing to go to a, a psychiatrist, not willing to confide in a friend. And I mean, she's walking around with that, you know, she, she was walking around with that phone bill in her pocket, but she doesn't, she doesn't tell Francine what she's discovered. Right. So, so nobody, 
nobody asks Joan how she is, but Joan also holds herself very much. Um, she, she's got a lot of deflection about her and she, she has a, a facade of control and that's her, that's her jam. And you know, how she dealt with her roommate, Carol, before, before Carol professes her love for her, Carol has lost her job and, and her response is, well, you know, put a smile on your face and we're going to go out and we're going to have fun. There's no, like Joan doesn't want to listen to anybody like that's that. And Joan doesn't want to confide in, you know, in anybody in any real way, at least in what we're seeing in season one. There's the culture, but there are some people who are different than the culture. Helen Bishop is somebody who tells it like it is. You know, and and Francine, to the degree that she is, is as well. For Joan, we also linked in her reactions and outlook on things directly to Roger. She she acts towards her roommate the way Roger does towards Don or anybody who's around, which is come come be my partner in crime and whatever I'm about to do, you're with me without much compassion or considerations for what that person wants. I mean, Joan, Joan and Roger seem to have that same outlook or instinct maybe favorite scene of the season deborah the closing musical montage of babylon mm. just takes my breath away every time yeah not bad that's it okay we're done <laughs> matt oh I don't even know what I would say to something like this. It's so hard to pick. So I'll just go with the first thing that pops into my mind, which is the scene in the marriage of Figaro when Don is at the train crossing and the train comes by and the scene doesn't have him telling us or thinking in voiceover, I might kill myself right now. Like all of that is, you know, obvious from what's going on, that that's what's happening inside of him and that that's why he left and that's why it took him so long for him to come back to the house. All of that is there. You know, it's a, it's, it's such a great example of how the show trusts its characters. But what really is striking to me on rewatch is that you don't see the train. You don't see the train itself. There's no, uh, you know, and obviously a lot of these decisions are budgetary, but it's also a perfect example of how working with what you've got results in something that is better for the show. And um, you see the train reflected in the glass of the car windshield. And the scene is, is there's a long unbroken shot of him watching the train go by. And what is important in this is Don's face and the relationship between the audience and that character, because you were sitting there watching his face and you were thinking, what is he thinking? What is he feeling? And the show isn't telling you. You have to imagine it. And everybody's going to have a slightly different version of, of, of what Don is thinking and what Don is feeling in that scene. And Don being Don is not going to tell you. There's not a scene later in the season where he says, you know, when I was at the train station, I was thinking and feeling this, that, and the other thing. It's not that kind of a show. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's lasted is that it doesn't hand you every single thing gift-wrapped with a little bow on it. Yeah. Dan? Um, the hobo, where he's talking to the hobo uh, when he's giving him his things for the night, and the hobo tells young Don, Dick, about um about, about life really but he's telling him about the markings and about the code that hobos use as they as they uh travel and what it's like to be you know living on the rails and all like this so that whole that whole sequence with 
young young dick and the hobo is that's it for me i've said it on, on the episode discussing the hobo coat where um you can trace almost anything we learn about Don going forward in this season and future seasons back to that, back to right then, which is kind of extraordinary, you know. Um, even if psychologically we all have that rosebud type of thing, um, the way that it was done and how it was done and uh, the context in which these things were revealed through that scene was extraordinary. Um, I just love the par- I just love the party in Nixon versus Kennedy. So I, I don't have a I don't have a one. It's it's I mean we just talked about it um, in the episode that just dropped, but it's just it's I I I want to be at that party. I always want to be at that party, <laughs> and I I I have regrets about being at that party. Don't get me wrong. I will probably have a terrible time. What I what I said when we discussed it was like Peggy says I'm leaving, and Marge says don't go, and I'm on team both <laughs> sides of that conversation like um i love that party i love that party i love the i love, I love paul's play i love i just you know paul's play. I, I just love i love that party and i just i think we should give special mention because none of us i was waiting for somebody and the lipstick scene yeah honorable mention <laughs> Honorable mention, and you you can't see this listener, but the four little heads in the Zoom all went, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> nod, nod, nod. Um, all right, let's take a short break, and, um, and we'll be back. got themselves a patreon we do we do subscribe to us over at patreon.com slash they coined it pod you'll find extra content some spoilers but mostly it's just a great way to support us we love you we thank you we enjoy interacting with you and we really want to keep this podcast going and i think you want us to as well head on over to patreon.com they coined it pod and support us there and you know while you're browsing around please leave us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Hey, we'll see you for season two. Deb, so, you know, I know as a researcher for Matt's book and all the work that you've done on the blog and just your life as a writer, research is is always primary for you. With Mad Men, what, in all the research that you've done and, but what surprised you most in your research about this period that kind of sticks with you or informs the show for you? First of all, one of the things that was surprising was how that was extraordinary in Mad Men was how much there was there once I started looking and that actually like in Indian summer, they they actually had the weather right Hmm. that the the Mad Men production team was was actually if, if they come in and they shake rain off of their trench coats at the office it was raining that day <laughs> they there was no need to do that right. <laughs> yet they did um i think that what what is so remarkable about this period is the way that 
what we think of as the 60s sort of happens all at once. We sort of see it in later seasons because what we're seeing in season in season one in 1960, we're very much seeing the 50s. There's stuff popping, right? There's there's um, Paul talking about like the Twilight Zone, and there's there's cool stuff that's starting to pop. But in later seasons, it happens overnight. The phenomenon that we look back on now historically as this sort of singular moment was in many ways that at the time. And I am, in fact, the oldest person sitting on this call. <laughs> and, you know, so I remember little bits of it, but... Um, it, it, it just was like one day it was these 60s that looked like they were going to be the 50s except a little bit cooler and then all of a sudden it wasn't all of a sudden it was the 60s as as we recall them and there's no Mad Men can't ease us into it because the culture didn't ease into it no i was thinking like if you look at the cover of revolver and then look at the cover of sergeant pepper it gives you a sense of how yeah that's great yep exactly yeah. Good visual. Like, oh, they all have mustaches and long hair, and they're and and everything is psychedelic. What is going mm -hmm. on? Yeah. But I also think it's uh, beautiful how they capture the way that things just sort of happen. People don't decide now. I'm going to update my look. Now I'm going to be. Uh, now I'm going to have a 1964 look. Like it's something that just happens. And like you see, the women's hair and the men's hair changing. You see the clothes changing, and and. Uh, and it will continue to change as the show goes on. And like everybody's very uniform in season one, but that that starts to change pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's interesting. Like, how did this guy turn into this guy? And that's sort of the story of everybody on Mad Men, and it's the story of yeah. the country as well. Like, how did this country become this other country? Matthew Weiner, in talking about the show, especially as it was going on and as it was being produced, would talk about the coarsening of the culture. The culture itself went in this direction from this more genteel politeness and courtesy and the good and bad that sort of surrounded that to to just a course and you know by the time you get to the late 60s and there's assassinations and really horrible overt things that are going on but we see it along the way it's 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 intended to be history in real time that it, it, some of it is all at once but but so much of it is like boiling the frog in the water it's just sort of before you know it you're at this point but the steps along the way may not be evident until you look back or mark it or, or document it. And that's kind of what the show is, is that documentation, which is for someone who was born after the sixties, just fascinating to, to, to relive or, or watch. And yet, and, and, and yet that, that, that uh, I think at the same time, the show doesn't give you this kind of false, like uh, reductionist idea that uh, things got coarser and more violent and things started to fall apart because that's kind of the conservative mm -hmm. narrative of the 60s and it's not really what happened and 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 the show was always very good from the very very beginning of showing you that there was a difference between the way that this particular like uh, official american culture was upper middle class white people and everybody else was aspiring to be part of that and and to emulate that in some way and if you didn't it was either because you you didn't fit in they would never let you in or you tried and failed or you simply never wanted to be part of it like somebody like midge I think is an interesting character because she exists on the periphery. She needs to uh, sort of pass as a respectable citizen in order to make money, but that's not where her heart is. 
that's not where her heart is at all. And Don, and that's why she has that bond with Don, because Don, has, there's an aspect of that to Don as well. But like they show you that even though officially everything is very Rock Hudson and Doris Day, that there's this underbelly of people are starting to go to, um, people are starting to go to uh, slightly racier movies. They're listening to music that is a, a little off center. Like you hear at one point, you hear Miles Davis's sketches of Spain being played in the party yeah. scene in uh in season one yeah. yeah and um um and also just there's this constant awareness that, like the official story that we tell ourselves about the united states being like a place of truth and justice where you can you can rise up by your own bootstraps and it's meritocracy is like clearly contradicted by the fact that the black characters on the show are basically a greek chorus who are sort of orbiting the periphery and acting as maids and elevator operators and uh um, and also, uh, there's an entire mass of poor people, many of them white, and we and we see them most clearly in Don's flashbacks. That there's like you know that, and that the entire country was in fact, for the for the most part, desperately poor during the depression, and and then like everybody got a taste of that, and eventually they forgot it. Don presents as this stereotypical respectable businessman out of a out of a 1950s uh, uh, like a big Technicolor extravaganza. And yet, um, he's the child of uh, a prostitute who died in in uh, giving birth to him, and he and and you know he he's he lived a childhood of incredible deprivation and and abuse, and he and he wanted to escape it, and that's why he chose to pretend to right. be somebody else. So like the the show, I think, is like it's aware of the mythology that we tell ourselves. Yeah, the men who built this country. The I men mean, who that's... built this country, exactly. But at the same time, it's also saying that's a bunch of crap. Right, you, and you exactly. said white middle class. Um, you said middle class white people, upper middle class white people. But it's more yeah. than that. It's it's middle class white heterosexual Gentiles, and the show is is right. is quite thorough in showing you who is oppressed by that. You know, the character of right. Rachel, uh, the character of obviously Salvatore. We we yeah. are we are seeing how tight that definition is, and how many people are excluded. Helen. Helen, right? Truly, wow. Let's um, let's talk about our favorite quotes of the season. I am going to leap in here because I am so passionate about my favorite quote. It is when Roger says, "We have oysters, Rockefeller, Napoleons, beef Wellington. If we don't eat this lunch, it'll take over Europe." <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you got one? I, God, I, I, you know, I'm always afraid I'm going to misquote it, so I'm just going to paraphrase. I believe it's in this season. Um, uh, Roger, uh, you know, you want to know what genius in advertising is? 99 cents. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do. I love that. That's so great. Roberta, you go. Mine is, I mean, again, it is, it is hard to choose. Um, but Peggy, I don't think anyone wants to be one of a hundred colors in a box has always stuck with me. Uh, just, it's, it's just shows so much about who she is, how she thinks. I love it. I love it. Plus I like crayons. (laughs) I think I'm, I'm usually not so on the nose, but I, I love the, the discussion we've had here about 
Mr. Campbell, who cares? That line contains multitudes. It just really does. So There's so much in so few words, the efficiency of what that line means and resonates and, and, and both within the context of that moment and then far beyond it. And it's also kind of like when you're dealing with Burke Cooper, you just you don't know what's under that lid. You just don't know what's going on under there. And that's for a character in a show like this in the hands of a creator like Matt Weiner. That's pretty, pretty great stuff. Any closing thoughts from our guests? One more quote, because we're looking at Mad Men in 2020. Best year ever. And Pete Campbell says, the president is a product. Don't forget that. <sighs> the Senate Majority Leader is a product. Don't forget that. <laughs> oh, that hurt. Matt, any, a lot. Any, closing, any closing thoughts? Um, only that... Uh, whenever I do uh, any sort of appearance related to this show, uh, I often get the question of, aren't you tired of talking about Mad Men? And the answer is no, because there's so much to the show that I really, really, truly could write the entire book over again and not duplicate very much of what I said the first time. And, and, and even now, like reading it, I've actually stopped – even glancing at my own book because all I can think of is, God, I should have put this in and I should have put that in. God, I missed that. And, and, you know, the book is, you know, including the back matter and the footnotes and endnotes and stuff. It's, you know, it's like almost a 500 page, well, 460 page book or something. And it could be a thousand page book yeah. very easily, very easily. And, and, and it's incredible how you can zero in on really specific aspects of it. Like I went to this Mad Men conference in 2016 and, some of the papers that were presented there were mind-boggling in their specificity. And there was one that was only about the relationship of Mad Men to science fiction and the idea of Mad Men as a kind of science fiction about the recent past. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, that's a whole book right there. That's a whole book right there. And there was, a, and there was an, uh, you know, several presentations about the fashion and – how the fashion, particularly women's fashion, function narratively within the show to develop the characters and, and give you a clue about what they were going through in their lives. Like, not just economically, but emotionally. Like, you could do a whole book just on that. And, like, there were – I don't remember how many papers there were. There were probably, like, 20 or 30 papers, and every one of them was different. And each and every one of them, like, when I heard the premise or when I saw the presentation, I was like, oh, I wish I could go back in time and have – all of these people be sources for me because there's so much stuff that I just like as much as I've obsessed over this show, there's so much more that I've missed. It's infinite. It, yeah. it, it, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's actually a great, a great place to end. I mean, Dan, you know, Deborah and I started the blog all those years ago because we wanted to talk about the show because we would talk to each other and it would just, there was so much to say and so much to discover. And, and, you know, We've all written about the show a lot, and yet Dan and I get together once a week after watching an episode. We could take any single scene and talk about that scene for an hour or two, right? It's just we and often do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it. We're not we're not fluffing here. Like there's, it's like and no, it's real yeah. neat. And then we'll, you know, yeah. and after we record, you know, in the editing process, we'll, one of us will think of something else that we, oh, I, I just thought of something else. It is all, all the time, all the time. It's so great. And the, the, the show keeps giving. It's going to be fun to get into season two and, and beyond that and rediscovered. I mean, that's really what this has been. Season one 
obviously I think we were both most familiar with, um, most people are most familiar with. Um, looking forward to what, you know, how much greater the future seasons are going to be upon, you know, rediscovery. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun looking forward to that and hope that our listeners will, will join us for that. We've had really great discussion here with uh, Matt Zahler Seitz from Vulture.com and from RogerEbert.com and Deborah Lip from the James Bond Ultimate Fan Guide or Fan The book. Ultimate James Bond Fan Book and DebraLip.com, actually. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Thank guys. You both. What we a discussion. It. That's it yep. for now. We'll see you there. We'll be back. Oh